You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Michelle Rigby Assad, who's a former undercover officer in the CIA, the Directorate of Operations. Trained as a counterterrorism specialist, Michelle served her country for 10 years, working in Iraq and other secret Middle Eastern locations. Upon retirement from active service, Michelle and her husband, Joseph, who is also a former CIA case officer, joined a group of Americans who wished to aid persecuted Christians. Their efforts resulted in the evacuation of a group from northern Iraq that was featured on ABC's 2020 in December of 2015. She holds a master's degree in contemporary Arab studies here from Georgetown University. And today she serves as an international security consultant, splitting her time between the Middle East, Florida, and Washington, D.C. She's the author of a new book, Breaking Cover, My Secret Life in the CIA, and what it taught me about what's worth fighting for. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. I, I, I think that you know this is a book where um, I imagine since it's so recent, your experience is so recent, that when you had to get it cleared by PRB, there may have been a back and forth about what you could say and what you couldn't. Can you talk a little bit about the PRB process? Because there are some reactions that you actually left in the book and I think they're odd to a degree, and we can talk about that in a second. We can talk about your experience with the PRB. Sure. So um, actually, before I even started writing the book, I didn't even know if I had enough material that would be clearable. So I just started writing, and then um, I was surprised once I submitted to the PRB uh, my, an earlier version of the book. It cleared in like three weeks. <laughs> Um, but that's not the book we're looking at right okay. now. <laughs> so when I actually got the book deal, it was for a different book. So I, re But I rewrote a lot of the same material. Mm -hmm. I included a lot of that. Um, unfortunately, my book got behind some very controversial books uh, pre-election. Mm. And so it took a great deal of time before they even got to mine. So my publication date was pushed back twice because of that. Now, once the PRB actually looked at it, it only took like two weeks right. to clear. And, and I'm always interested as a historian who's looked through documents, and I consider this to be a historic document. It's essentially it's a memoir. Yes. What they decide to redact and leave in is pretty extraordinary. Like the redaction of a particular name of a country, but it doesn't take a ton of detective work to read the next two pages and know exactly where you're talking about. And I'll leave that to the, to the people <laughs> who are gonna buy the book and read it to figure out what I'm talking about. But it always interests me in like how they choose what shouldn't be there and what they allow to leave in. Yes, so what, uh, what they felt comfortable leaving in was detailing that I served in Baghdad for a year. I think because everyone knows the CIA is in the war zones, right. so it's well established that we've got a presence there and in Afghanistan. But in terms of the other locations, the CIA cannot confirm and does not want to confirm where we have a presence and where we're working. Yeah. So those locational names were redacted, and those redactions were kept in the book because we didn't know how else to do it. Right. <laughs> You yeah. could have put little like brackets and redacted, <laughs> but that, I think people get a kick out of seeing like what they will allow and what they won't. Right. Uh, despite a couple of critical elements toward the agency in this book, do you think that because it's such a positive story 
about intelligence work and about the CIA that that helped the process no. go through a little no okay no and the reason is because they're not uh, reviewing your book for content and whether the CIA agrees with what you're saying they're literally just looking to ensure that there's no sources or methods mm -hmm. or protections any classified information that's being released so it's funny that public has this idea that the the agency has to agree with everything right. you're saying and it's just it's not how they approach it the clearance process let me ask you about source material because anytime you're writing a book about intelligence uh even if you're the person that the book is about, source material can be tricky because you can't just go back to your mission notes. <laughs> right. Yeah, those aren't publicly available for you to write about. But you talked about you kept the journal. You have the notes of the interviews that you did, which we'll talk about in a little bit from these displaced persons. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was really interesting and, and, and so different than perhaps a book we might have read 15, 20 years ago is you have this mass database of what I would call your support group, emails and text messages from all the people, which helps you figure out dates and times and places and all this. You know, modern, modern technology allowing us to, to kind of piece together a story that the material's just not available otherwise. Right, and so just to be very clear, none of these yeah. texts or emails were agency yes. information at all. It was my, um, my experience, especially with, with regard to the evacuation project and remembering what happened when mm -hmm. in Iraq. Um, and the, the kinds of letters that I used to send home when I was serving for the 10 years in the agencies were culturally, culturally related. Mm -hmm. So here's what happened to me today. Funny story on the street. Right. Um, obviously not uh, operational in, it, right. in nature. It wasn't like I recruited someone today. Yeah. And <laughs> Let me tell you who that secret yes. source is. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you about your origin stories. Anytime I have a former on, I, I especially because of our audience, tends to be of the age where they're trying to figure out life. And, and even if they're older members of the audience, you know, I'm, I'm in my 40s and I'm still figuring out life. So a lot of us are trying to do, you know, use other people's example and other people's lives as inspiration, well, what to do, what not to do. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of people on the, the podcast who knew very early in life that they wanted to work in foreign policy or something national security related. Some even knew from a very early age they wanted to be a CIA case officer. Wow. You're not that person. You, you never imagined as a kid that you would have a 10-year career at no. CIA. I wanted to be a ballerina <laughs> or a rockette on Broadway yeah, or a pediatrician, but never in my wildest dreams could I have even imagined that the CIA was an actual job. Um, but what I, I was fascinated by foreign cultures, and that came from reading National Geographic magazine. And I didn't know where that would lead me because I was just a little kid from a small town in central Florida. I just wasn't exposed to this world at all. So unlike my colleagues who grew up in the DC area, whose neighbors worked right. for FBI and Treasury and federal government who kind of had an idea of these things, I, however, had no idea. Um, so I just started trying to get abroad as often as possible. And that passion for foreign cultures and that um, the idea of wanting to learn more about the intricacies of the Arab world eventually brought me to Georgetown for a master's degree in Arab studies. And then, the, of course, the CIA recruits out of Georgetown. Right. Well, but even in that case, it's not that seamless of a transition no. to CIA. Because you, you started out applying to CIA to be an analyst. I didn't know what I was applying for. Oh, I just know. threw my resume into a big box full of hundreds of resumes. And um, when I got contacted by agency recruiters, they were interested in me as an analyst. And so initially I got hired uh, for that job thrust. But then? It fell, yeah. <laughs> it fell from beneath my feet right before I started that job and I was completely shocked. Well, I mean, that's the nightmare scenario for a lot of people out there is that you kind of go, okay, I'm gonna do this job, I finally figured it out. You know, I mean, especially yeah. people in DC, everyone's struggling to find well, you consider an entry-level job, but for someone incredibly educated, entry-level job is a whole other ballgame. Yes, and that's a DC trap, right? Like DC's full of it, right? right? Well, yeah. that's a DC trap where everyone wants you to have experience, but the only way to get experience is actually yes. to do the job. And, and I think Catch everyone 22. knows that a little yeah. bit. Um, and it, it, you never got an explanation, but you yeah. found out much later that it was not as, as sinister, perhaps, as you might. I mean, because, of course, you're thinking a thousand things in your head about yeah. why do they reject me. Yes, I mean, when you get a letter that says, you no longer meet the yeah. requirements <laughs> of the CIA, you think, what did I do? Um, so, yeah, I was, I was completely shocked. I had no idea what had happened. But later learned that they overhire for positions, assuming not everyone will get through the background mm -hmm. investigation process. And so I, mine took longer than others, and I just got... 
cut yeah, they the just ends. they lower hanging fruit were mm -hmm. cleared before you were, and then you just got cut out again. Maybe an experience that people understand. Yes. Uh, sadly, uh, in this city, um, but your husband Joseph, who who plays a big role in certainly this story and your life. I mean, as as he should, but even more so than perhaps others. And a friend that you call Justin in the book, whether or not that's really Justin, we understand, uh, led the way to your early understanding of there's a whole another part of CIA called the Director of Operations. Yeah, who knew? And this other side of the CIA is, quote, the cool side. Right. This is what my friend Justin said. And he's like, you know, guys, we really need to get in that side. And of course, my husband was like, oh, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. And I was like, really? I don't know. I mean, look at me. <laughs> Do I look like somebody who could be a clandestine officer? I just couldn't imagine how I could fit into that crazy espionage world. Well, not that they were allowed to tell you just about anything, but at least you had the benefit of watching their progress a little bit because right. they went into the program before you did. Correct. Yeah. That, so that's got to be a, a nice, yeah, a nice benefit. They can't, you know, it's against the law technically for them to tell you what they've done in training, but right. you can see that they solve all their limbs left and they're <laughs> still sane and they're not, you know, right. yeah, that helps. That helps. Um, and your husband, Joseph was immediately called back when he applied to work for the DO because his yeah. biography really is exactly yes. what they're looking for. But yours is too. And I think that um, you know, once he had their attention and said, hey, look, my wife, her background is pretty great, yeah. uh, you, you were an easy call for them. Yes, yes. At that point, they said, oh, wow, both of you speak Arabic, both of you know the Middle East. And remember, this was pre-9-11. Mm -hmm. So at that time, um, it wasn't, there weren't a lot of people who knew about the Middle East. So they or had studied it or traveled abroad and were seeking these positions. So it, it definitely highlighted us to them. Well, and even pre-9-11, this is a time when the agency starts paying a whole lot of attention to that area of the world. You know, you're talking about the coal and the embassy bombings. Right. And when things begin to blink red, as it's been talked in the past. So I can see why they jumped all over your skill set, because it's yeah. just very unique. And having the husband-wife team yeah, certainly was something, yep. you know, and, and it's two for one on a kind of logistical side, mm -hmm. but there's huge benefits yeah. for both them and you. Absolutely. I mean, I've talked to a lot of CIA case officers who one of their biggest problems they had was they had married someone that they said that they were going to share their entire life with, yeah. but they couldn't. You can't. You can't. Right. You know, and you have somebody next to you. Not only are they cleared for this stuff, but they're literally doing the same operations. Exactly. You know, when when your spouse, who you know better than anyone else, um, is the one that's helping you prep for your meetings or conduct counter surveillance for your operations. I mean, that person's got your back, and who better than your spouse? Right. Yeah. It's interesting, and I've heard this done before, and I've read this before, but you do it in, in a very concise way that I think there's like one paragraph that I would, I would look at. We talk about what the CIA is looking for, and you know, your words walk in contradictions. And this is going to sound you know, self-evident to a lot of the listeners, but the way that you lay it out I thought was very good. You, know, you want Thank someone you. who's honest but lies for a living. I mean, that's basically what you're doing is you're going overseas right. and you're pretending that you're someone you're not. And at the same time, by doing so, you're breaking the laws. There's no country on earth where espionage is legal. Yeah, yeah, welcome. <laughs> right, but your background check here to work at CIA, you can't have a history of breaking the law. Right, you have to be squeaky clean. Yeah. And that's just, I mean, to me, it's always been fascinating, was the idea of you need to be able to trust someone that they're not going to turn against you, but their whole entire job is to do that overseas. Right. And manipulate other people. And to be able to lie to everyone they see, mm -hmm. and everyone, even some people that are close to them, right. that they work for the State Department as a second deputy agricultural attache, <laughs> that the minister of shrubberies for some embassy overseas, you might have to say this to your brother or your mom, but you're going to be honest to the agency. And right. that's that juxtaposition that I think is just fascinating. It is. It's a wild contradiction. And so I think that's why it's such a challenge for the agency to hire people, because you have to get a very particular kind of person. So someone who, um, and, and in addition, it has to be someone who's a good team player, but then you're running most of your operations right. on your own. And so you have to be able to engage in both worlds. Well, I think what Hollywood gets so wrong is this idea that case officers, and they don't ever call them that, you know, spies, mm -hmm. are kind of making stuff up as they go along. Yeah. And they, they what they ignore, even shows that try to get it right, I put quotes around that, like a homeland or the Americans, right. there are 
hours, if not days, if not weeks of mission planning that yes. goes into a very simple one-hour meet with someone. That is so correct. And of course, yeah. that would be boring if you put that on a TV show <laughs> or a movie. Right. But you need to be as meticulous a planner as any military operation, even more so in some cases. You don't yeah. have the support of being able to call in an AC-130 if you get in trouble. Right. But what they do get right in Hollywood is that no good plan survives first contact with the enemy, right? No matter right. how meticulously you plan, you're going to have to be able to figure out a way as you say and others, to get off the X if you find yourself in a bad situation. Right. Murphy always yes. shows up. Murphy's law of rules. And so it says, you know, if you, you try to plan for 100 different contingencies, it's going to be that one thing you right. never thought of that pops up in the middle of your op. And so you have to be able to roll with it. You have to be a person that can operate under incredibly stressful circumstances and keep your head head on straight. Right. Yeah. Thinking clearly. Well, and, and you talk in the book about like fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. And you, you know, one is really bad. You know, you, <laughs> you can have an argument about freeze. running away or fighting, but the last thing in the world is a deer in headlights because you just set yourself up for failure. And yeah. and and some people, and they may be unbelievably good planners, mm -hmm. but when the plan goes to hell, it takes a certain kind of person that can at least mitigate the damage right. that's going to happen. Do the you very best you can. Right. You don't always have a positive outcome, but to avoid complete disaster sometimes is all you can hope for. Right, because your life is on the line, but even more importantly, the person you're meeting with, right. your clandestine source, their life is on the line, so you have to get it right. Let me talk a little bit about your process of getting in CIA, because I think that you do a, a better job than many in kind of saying what you can uh, about the application, training process, everything. I mean, I joke all the time about the limitations of what you can say and what I can say. As yeah. me not being former CIA, I can use, I can say the farm. I can, I can say, go on Google Earth. It's on this river and that river and this exact <laughs> GPS point. And you guys, what are you what talking, are you talking about? about? What farm? I don't ever heard <laughs> don't of that before. That. I've never. So, um, but you, you kind of. Obviously, this was checked out, so everything that you read in this, and, and does a better job than most, so it's worth grabbing, is uh, completely okay with the CIA. Mm -hmm. um, but most people understand that you, you need to take a psychological evaluation to get into CIA, and yes. then, of course, the dreaded box, the polygraph. Oh, yes. Which, I've thought of this in the past, but again, you eloquently lay this out, and I'm not trying to kind of blow smoke in your direction. I, 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 the way this is written is, is, is so user-friendly mm -hmm. that some of them aren't. It's especially problematic for people who grew up with guilty consciences, whether they yeah. were guilty or not yeah. of anything. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a relapsed Catholic. I grew up in that environment. I, I taught in a Catholic school. I was married in a Catholic church. And boy, do I know what guilt is. Right. And yeah, because so, if you even considered a sin in your heart, it's as if you did carried out that sin. No, I was yeah. laughing about that. I literally, I, I was reading through the book, and then I thought about getting a... a I'll say it like a big, big ass chocolate milkshake from down the street. And I didn't. But for the rest of the day, I felt guilty <laughs> that I had screwed up. Like, I need to work out extra tonight because I thought about that. I know that's, a, that's an extreme, but it, it, that's the point we're talking about here right. where when you're strapped up to a polygraph, you can't help but. A movie reel yeah. of material goes through your mind. Every sin you might have ever committed in your whole life. It's a scene from Goonies. Yeah, where Chunk totally is just is. giving everything since he was three years old. And, and my favorite thing is that the polygrapher goes, just relax. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and if you haven't taken a polygraph, they put electrodes and things in places that make it very difficult to relax. Yeah. You know? um, yes, that's always interesting. And, 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 and because you, you as... If you haven't read the book, if you don't know your bio, uh, you do have a very religious background, mm -hmm. and that really plays a big role yes. in this book. And so you come from this position of ingrained guilt. Yes. Uh, and it's, it's amazing that we're both, at one point, we're able to be cleared it because I, I'm guilty about thinking about things, and uh, <laughs> I, I understand you are as well. So <laughs> let me talk a little about your training because I think this is something that also will ring true to a lot of people, uh, the, the confluence between pop culture in reality, um, and again, now meeting you for the first time, I can see why the Sydney Bristow alias concept was something that you latched on to. Yes, I mean, I loved her. I'm ex-military, and of course, going through the rigmarole of, of basic training, where you're just trying to like, I haven't slept in three days. Yeah. I'm going through mud. It's raining. It's snowing. How do I get through this? And you're mm -hmm. thinking about, well, 
you know, John Rambo could do it, you know, whatever. And in your case, Sydney Bristow Sydney could Bristow do it. Sydney Bristow can do it. Yeah. I can too. <laughs> yeah. And it, that's obviously the Hollywoodist version of it, but yeah. it, it, it's amazing how many people have talked about the fact that they've kind of had some kind of pop cultural reference in their back of their head. I mean, you got to have something in your brain to right. get you through those moments. When it's not like, oh, okay, well, I've carried out surveillance activities before. I know what that's like. Really? Right. You no, know, you haven't. I mean, have you ever been followed for hours? Um, because, you know, if you go to a meeting and you've carried surveillance with you, then you're putting your, your asset, your source's life on the line. So these kinds of um, uh, skills um, are really critical. And the psychological side is the key because, I mean, you, you're physically tested. Yeah. But the mental side is what gets people most of it. Yeah. I mean, you think about the special operations guys who, you don't try out to be a Navy SEAL unless you're, you have 4% body fat and you're, you can run for miles. But what right. gets people to quit is the mental side. Yes. And I, that's, I think that's very much true with the agency as well. It's a, it's a very mental game. Espionage is far more about psychology than you know, martial arts moves and yeah. martinis and fast cars. And Which I is sad, but that's <laughs> yeah, okay. No, yeah. right? <laughs> but um, but I, that's the part of that intrigued me so deeply. And that's why I think it's so interesting that I got into the CIA because I have this very strong, empathetic nature and a strong intuition. And I work well with people of all kinds of backgrounds. And so that ability to get along with others is what helped me be a really good case officer, get in the room with your sources, and figure out how, what makes them tick so you can figure out how to get them to reveal their secrets. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. There's a recurring theme in this book that I thought was really refreshing, and I think it's going to appeal to 95% of the audience out there, not the 5% of the uh, not-all-men crowd, um, but the recurring theme of, of uh, the women's experience yeah. at CIA, uh, and not just at CIA, but in this world. Mm -hmm. um, and this starts at the very beginning of your training, where your training officer you, is you and, an, and another person. You're paired up, small groups. He was a man. And your training officer never looked at you for basically the entire beginning, several weeks of your training. Correct. Uh, and that was your first real, oh, shit, I'm in a whole other world here. Welcome to the CIA. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, and he's an old guy. He's an old white guy. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly they were shocked that you could do much of anything because of the yeah. old guard of where women were secretaries or they were right. Mataharis. And he even said that to me. He, he's like, well, in my day, you know, women were secretaries. Right. <laughs> they typed our notes for us. But I mean, you do dismiss that, saying easy to blame it on the old guys, but the perception is still there somewhat, even with the it younger is. community, that that some jobs are better suited for men, particularly in CT work Yes. in the Middle East. I heard this numerous times, yeah. and I found it really shocking. Um, until, you know, I got to the field, and I'd been told over and over again that as a female, you're dealing with uh, radical ideologues, terrorist sources, and they don't think very highly of women. But yet, so my colleague, who doesn't know anything about Sunnis and Shias in Iraq, he d can't speak Arabic, and he's never been to the Middle East before. Wait a minute. You mean, you're telling me he can do a better job than me? And I have been intensely studying this for years of my life. Spent so, many, so much time abroad. And, but I thought, well, the CIA must know. I mean, right. they're the CIA. So I believe that for a long period of time. And you had the foundation of knowledge that can't be taught by the CIA. Right. right. You, you have the Georgetown degree. You have the CIA is there to teach you all the, the methodologies the trade craft, and the right? tradecraft. Yeah. You know, and, that, and so that you're better prepared than this guy because he's got to learn all that basic stuff that you already have right. and go from there. Yeah. I, I think you could put this, you know, our audience tends to be younger. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully they don't have this in their mindset. Um, but I think this book will appeal to those outside of kind of our little fiefdom here dealing with intelligence or national security. And I, I don't put this on the same 
plane because they're very different books, but the, the whole idea of the lean-in culture. Yes, where absolutely. This double standard that it, we see everywhere. The idea is a man is assertive, a woman is a bitch. Mm -hmm. You know, where you are open, smiley, engaging. I can see that after talking to you for 15 minutes, but people assumed you were stupid or naive right. because you were nice to get along with. I'm easy to get along right. with, so I couldn't possibly be intelligent, driven, or have grit, which is completely wrong. Yep. Right, because you know, you look at a Bond kind of character. We can walk in and seduce the room, and he's you know the guy everyone wants to hang out with, and the, you know, all the women want to be with, and that's that's the personality that you're showing now. Where you walk in a room, you're, you're we're already buddies. You're friends right, with the right. AV guys. You're friends with people downstairs. You have this personality that if you were a guy, you'd be like, oh, I could see how this person could be a great, <laughs> but. Yeah. People perceive you as, oh, she's bubbly, or she's, right. you know, she's she's not serious enough to right. do this job. And um, so when I start speaking about Middle East topics, or when I choose something to talk about to reveal my intelligence, it tends to shock people. And it, oh, but there's a yeah. fantastic. I mean, several times in this book where you just turn this perceived disadvantage around on everyone and just use it to just use your biases against them, just to bludgeon them over the head yeah. with the idea that they underestimated you at their peril. Yes. Um, Very useful. And I, and I love, you know, we're, we're big fans of Virginia Hall here at the Spy Museum. <laughs> yes, uh, we love little, her. A little promo for her. We have a lot of her artifacts and you know, the stuff that she actually used. We'll show them to you uh, after this. Yeah. Um, and she, she grew up just up the street, you know, in, in Maryland. Uh, and uh, seeing that as an inspiration, I mean, that could not be a better inspiration for somebody that was underestimated their entire lives, mm -hmm. thought they couldn't do it, was put in a situation where they had to do it. Yeah. And turned out to be one of the greatest of all time. Indeed. One of the best spies that ever lived. And someone, I mean, they're, they're finally making a movie about her, thank God. It's about time, right? It's about time. Yeah. I mean, this is an in insanely inspiring story, but I can see how uh, this was something that really resonated with you. Yeah. Because... Uh, while she was dealing with perceived weaknesses from the United States back in the 1930s, they still exist to somewhat, but you could carry her experiences to the Middle East where yeah. they're not even in the 1930s in right. their relationship with women, so I can see how that mattered. And having studied the Middle East so intimately, I was very aware of these dynamics, you know, when I'm about to walk in a room and debrief a source or pick somebody up in my car. And so the CIA was right in that regard. Like, okay, you know, these are hard people to right. work with. Yes, they are. Um, but what I was able to do is figure out some way to connect with each and every one of them as a different human being by figuring out their motivations, each of them being quite unique, mm -hmm. uh, intelligence levels, uh, interests, and then being able to take my um, element of surprise, like, oh, wow, wait, this is not what I thought. This person who walked through the door, who I initially got very excited about meeting because she's an uncovered female, right. is, is now actually really interesting because she sounds so smart. You know, I would have to showcase my intelligence, which sounds strange, but I had to prove to them that I was worth working with. And so now the new dynamic is that he wants to impress me because I'm a woman. Okay, I can use that. And, and I did. Well, you have an innate advantage in that a lot of the interrogation or slash debriefing process is getting your uh, subject off balance. Yes. And you have that built in because they're thinking one thing when you walk in the door and then you start speaking to them in Arabic and talking about the tribal differences and yes. their cities and stuff. Boom, they're toast. Yeah. Right? They have no idea what to think and you've got them exactly where you want them. Exactly. Yes. Let me ask you, we're going to get back to specifics as far as your first tour and then going to Iraq too, but one thing before we move on to that, a lot of people talk about whether or not they let their friends and family know what they did for a living, um, and a lot of them just kind of fall back on the regulation side, like you're allowed to do certain things and others, but I thought it was interesting how you lay it out, like use common sense, guys, mm -hmm. right? Maybe they say you can tell your mom, but you probably shouldn't, like, look, my mom would be the worst person on earth to have ever told whatever I did because everyone would know. Because she's proud, right? Not just she's proud. I mean, she's proud. She'd tell all her friends, people in the checkout line, at the grocery stores, <laughs> people see the Starbucks. Whenever I went home to visit, I would go to a local Starbucks or a local and be like, oh, you work at the Spy Museum and did all this stuff. And I'm like, do I know you? It's like, oh, I love your mom, Ray. And, that's my, <laughs> and she told me all about you. Like, so the last thing in the world I would want to do, even if I was allowed to, is tell my mom. And I think that... Right. That comes to play beyond this idea of who you're allowed to right. by CIA. 
Yeah, um, the CIA is great in the sense they say, you know, we want you to tell your families if you think they can handle yeah. it. And only you know whether they can. Um, and so for me, I, I did tell my family, my immediate family, like my best friend. Um, and so, but then they have to carry the burden right. of keeping your cover for the rest of your life or until you're, you know, cleared to drop cover, which is a big deal. It's very hard for some people. Well, I, I can imagine, I mean, kids too is the, the, you know, when do you let them know? I mean, Peter Ernest, who was our executive director for the last 16 years, I have to talk to him about this, the idea of how old your kids need to be before they yeah. can understand the burden yes. that comes with knowing that information. You have to be very mature. Well, yeah. you're basically telling them something that's top secret. You're right. kind of letting them in on something that if they tell people not only is it illegal, but it's also putting people's lives in danger. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about your first tour, because you didn't get to go to the Virgin Islands, which was a <laughs> shame for you. you. You went to somewhere, which the CIA doesn't want anyone to know about. Um, we talked about this redaction also. And this is where there, there is a little bit of criticism in the direction of particular people. I'm not, I don't think it's CIA writ large, but it does kind of show that there is pretty dramatic differences in leadership styles within the agency. And you may not always get someone that can do the job as effectively as they should as the chief of station or as the deputy chief. Not a great example you got right off the bat. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I was shocked. Um, You know, walking in, first tour, you're you're excited, but you know, you've just sold your house, your car, you've packed up all your belongings, you've moved to the edge of the earth, and then to be greeted by your first boss who actually curses at you (laughs) and threatens you uh, to make sure you don't do a poor job in this in this tour, and you've never done this job before, so you're not entirely sure you're capable. It's, uh, it's very intimidating. It's very disappointing. Well, that's basically all he said to you all yeah, for the first several weeks that you were months. there. Months. For okay. several months, in, in fact, um, until he finally figured out that we actually were skilled and knowledgeable and brought a lot to the table, and then finally he started warming up to us. But the fact that you're in a tiny little space, right. you know, walking past each other every day was very awkward. I mean, this clearly isn't the Kabul embassy because they would have let that go, which is hundreds, you know, well... It's a lot more people than you would have at a different place. And some of these CIA stations are rather large. This was not one of those. This was a tight-knit, small small. group where you need to have these interpersonal dynamics not just not go crazy. Yeah, exactly. And it's I had some amazing leadership towards the end of my career, but I would say the entire first half was one after the other, a parade of really poor leaders. And it really tainted my view of of the agency writ large and it's it's um, the fact that it wasn't teaching like chiefs of station mm-hmm. how to how to manage and how to uh, help shape the new generation of intelligence right. officers and their charges. You were unfortunately pigeonholed here as well. Uh, your gender played a role. Uh, you were immediately made a collection management officer, yes. uh, which has a huge benefits. Um, Which is an amazing job right, in and of yeah. itself. I mean, yeah. they're, they're subject matter experts of the subject. They're, they're experts on everything because yes. they see everything. They understand everything. They see the big picture where a case officer may only see their one little yeah. tunneled area. Exactly. But it's what women do. And, and that's what you were told. Yeah. I think the, the quote is, women don't know how to deal with Arabs. So you can't be out on the street actually being a traditional case officer. Which was strange because we had all gone through training to do just that. Right. And they had said, you know, we, we're, we're slotting you to be a CMO and your husband a case officer, but we're teaching you how to do everything. So you'll be able to recruit sources, you'll be able to develop and handle sources. And I was like, okay, that's great. And then the reality was we got to the field and our, my bosses were like, are you kidding? I'm not letting you do that. So I was a little bit shocked. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> especially because what happens later on, um, because let's skip to Iraq, because yeah. everyone's favorite deployment. Yeah. Uh, we'll get beyond the fact that it's not exactly fair to send you to Iraq so soon after redacted nation. Yes. Um, but they needed you badly there. I think it's they somewhat did. understandable. The sectarian violence at the time you were sent to Iraq was at very, very, this is right before the, the Sunni awakening, I believe. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And you, met, you, you refer to it as Groundhog Day, and you're not the first oh. to say this, but you certainly lay it out. There's the unrelenting cycle that every day is the same, whether it's running into uh, hardened shelters and having the same thing. And, and at this point, I can understand just not feeling like you're getting anywhere. Oof. The, the amount of work 
that we and the amount of information that we dealt with on an hourly basis is shocking. You know, it was we could not be strategic. We were just drinking out of a fire hose every minute of every day. I could barely eat. I mean, you could barely even give yourself time to run to the bathroom. I mean, that's what it, it was just um, hair on fire all the time. And you talk about the fact that you 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 eventually will prove your medal during yes. some of the source debriefings. Um, finally, gosh. finally, <laughs> and all the men had three strikes against them already. Yes. They were American. They were non-believers, and of course, they were CIA. CIA. But you added a fourth, and that you're a woman. And we talked about how you use that to your advantage, but I, I think it's important for people to understand why that mattered because it wasn't just a machismo thing. Right. It wasn't just a Arabs don't like women thing. You have to convince these people that you can keep them alive. Right. So what uh, is so fascinating is that when you're collecting this really sensitive insider information, and it might be known, say the location of a safe house, it might no be known to five terrorists. So if suddenly that safe house is raided, you know, that small group of people are going to know they probably have a mole in their mess. Mm -hmm. So that person who's risking their life to work with the CIA could be killed if that information isn't handled in a very delicate and sensitive manner. Or these days, leaks. You know, leaks are our biggest problem. And right. you don't want your name being leaked out as a CIA source because it could, you know, you'll be killed. Um, so they, when they walk in that room, they've got to be absolutely certain that the person they're dealing with is someone they're going to trust. And in the Middle East, trust is not conveyed quickly or easily. Right. You have got to earn that trust. Well, and, and you have to earn it way more than anyone else does. Yeah, I had to work yeah. extra hard. But, you know, honestly, that challenge was so fun for me. I loved it. And once I was able, you know, I walked out that first day and I was like, oh, my, I did it. <laughs> I was just wanted to keep doing it over and over and over again because the it was like a high. Right. And then finally, after all those years of feeling like maybe I'm good enough at the CIA, I finally felt like confident that I'm a really solid intelligence officer. And the things that I, that were unique to me, my personality actually really helped me in the debriefing room. Right. Yeah. And you now use that post CIA to yeah. to do a, a lot of really important work around the world. So let's let's talk about that because. There may be some formers out there. I mean, so I actually, even we have a young demographic, but I've met a ton of 28-year-old former CIA analysts and a bunch of, because of the pace of, of operations, because the forward deployment of just about everybody, uh, the deployment after deployment after deployment, the burnout rate is in incredibly high. Right. And so you do have some young people that have transitioned out of CIA. You, you spent 10 years, so you weren't, yes. you were still in your 30s, I assume, when you transitioned out of CIA, right. yeah. unless you graduated college at 17. <laughs> but um, it's not all that easy to transition back into normal life. You think of making a resume and all the things that you want to get across on a resume about how much leadership potential you have and how much responsibility you have, you can't say anything. You can't say anything. I mean, you can obtain a clear, cleared resume, right. is what they called it, and it says nothing interesting. Right. So who's going to give you a job based on that? And then on top of that, if you've been undercover, where's your Rolodex of contacts to help you secure a new job? I mean, you really are kind of uh, searching in the dark trying to figure out how to start life again when for the last, say, 10 years of your life, those key career-building years between, right. say, 30 and 40, and you have nothing to show for it. Well, in, in today's LinkedIn world, you're, you're, it's frowned upon to have a social media presence as a CIK's oh, yeah, officer, yeah, yeah. right? You Google yourself to be sure you don't come right. back. And, you know, and now you've been living in a world where everyone's going in the opposite direction. So the more LinkedIn connections, the more Twitter follow, uh, Facebook followers, and you know, I don't even know all this stuff partly, yes. <laughs> but um, the better. And then suddenly you've got nothing. Well, yeah. you even mentioned a couple seconds ago. Yes, you're not jumping out of airplanes with a martini in one hand and a stupidly named blonde in the other, but you're doing incredibly satisfying work that's mm -hmm. making a difference. There's times when your intelligence is going very high levels, saving lives, yes. doing all sorts of things. And now you're transitioning out to a civilian job where how is that going to come close to the self? I mean, I like my job, but the self-satisfaction of it doesn't compare to perhaps stuff I did in the past. I can't still do that because my knees don't work and everything right. else. But there are times when I was 21 that I was doing things I knew I was changing the world. Right. And how do you find that 
yeah. post-CIA, that's a difficult part of the transition. So, you know, a lot of people are unhappy in their jobs at the agency, but they're so scared of leaving because of that very thing. You don't know whether you're, you'll ever feel that level of meaning and purpose again. I mean, when on an hourly basis, you're uh, discovering the location of IEDs before troops roll over them in the street, or you find the location of a car bomb a day before they detonate it in the city and kill 50 people. So that kind of immediate feedback for your efforts and your sacrifice, it, it turns you into a bit of an adrenaline junkie. And then you think, well, gosh, I won't be the first one to see the intelligence. I won't be the first one to put it out. For You'll the, have to you know. read the newspaper <laughs> yeah, to learn what's happening in the world. Yeah, and so you, you do, I don't want to be on the outside. That's kind of scary. Yeah. But um, my, my life has demonstrated since then that you can have incredible purpose and meaning on the outside as well, which I'm very grateful to yeah. have discovered. We even talk about the idea of like institutionalization, but you know, look at Shawshank Redemption and the yeah. fact that yes. you even use the word recidivism, recidivism rate of people going back into the agency because they, not they can't hack it in the outside world, it's just they don't find purpose. Right, yeah, a lot, a lot of people do, yeah. It didn't take you long, though. It was, I think of you didn't mention the movie Taken in your book, but I think of that movie where he talks about he has a particular set of skills. <laughs> I love that. that and line. you have a particular set of skills that were in very high demands yeah. uh, outside of the CIA, and that was for whether it was multinational companies or NGOs or others that were working in these areas of the world and needed someone like you and your right. husband that had the background to understand how to negotiate these areas of the world. Indeed, it's quite useful. Um, and I think the most interesting project that we were involved with, which is uh, also included in the book, was an effort to try to find a safe haven for persecuted Iraqi Christians who'd been displaced by ISIS from their ancient villages. And um, the ability to carry out operations in really difficult places was what enabled us to um, kind of head up the operational mm -hmm. side of this project. And the, the ability to work in a bureaucracy. Right. I mean, you know, you've worked in any government agency. Yes. You know how hard that is. So we were able to use our diplomatic skills, you know, to approach different countries. We eventually got a country to say yes. That was Slovakia. Mm -hmm. But even then, what was fascinating was we had to help our Slovak contacts work their own bureaucracies. Right. And I want to dial down on this because I thought that the juxtaposition is interesting. Because not only are you working in entrenched bureaucracy of a country, yeah. but you're also working with almost the absence of bureaucracy with this bit of an ad hoc from Mark Burnett and his wife, Rana Downey, where it was, think of this idea and let's do it. We have no idea how. We have no idea right. how we're going to pull this off. Yeah. So you went from, on one end of the spectrum, a country right. where you're trying to work through their high levels and their ministers and other things. And the other end, make this crap up as we go along on the right. other side. Yeah, which this project is just a, a grouping of people with unique skill sets who said, let's see what we can make happen. Right. Yeah, let's just explore this. Well, and what Slovakia needed most was they were willing to accept the Iraqi Christians, but they needed to be vetted. Right. And who better <laughs> to vet people to find out if they're terrorists or bad guys than people who had done that as their jobs oh, within you know, CIA? A lot of people think that the, the sexiest side of the CIA is the recruitment. But I think... Handling your sources, vetting them and their information, for me, was the most fascinating part. I love that stuff. Trying to figure out if they're telling you the truth or they're, you know, um, if, it's, if they're lying or fabricating intelligence. That's right, super interesting. They're not all potential terrorists. They might just be scumbags out there that are trying to scam people. You tell the story. Like you lead the book off yeah. with an opportunist and not to give anything away. But this was somebody who probably wasn't going to be a suicide bomber one day. It was just a bad, like, trying to take advantage of, yeah. of someone. And, you know, those aren't the people that should get sent to, to, you know, to yeah. safety somewhere else. Right. And um, what was fun about these unscrupulous types is, uh, and I've dealt with a lot of NGOs in the past, a lot of charities and other things like that, and they're wonderful people, and some are very, very skilled. But the perception of them is that they... They're do-gooders. They may yeah. not know exactly what's going on in the world. And, and you can see probably, based on the way you describe this book, is that people saw you and your husband not knowing your background as, yeah. oh, there's some do-gooders who are trying to save Christians. There's some charity or some NGO. And we can get we can pull a fast one on them. <laughs> not true. Not so much, right? Not yeah. realizing that you were both 
former CIA operations officers. Yeah, so I take nothing at face value um, unless I can vet it myself or you know really look deeply into it. I, I don't take any kind of information of that nature for granted. Well, and your ability to understand some of the documentation too, because right. in the Middle East that is key to everything. Absolutely, yeah, and and you know taking their doc, saying give me your documentation. So if somebody shows up as a refugee and says I have nothing, first red flag, because you can hardly take a step in the Middle East culturally without some documentation to do just about anything. It's even more important than the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I love that. I won't get give away too much of the book, but the, the story of when your husband finally goes to meet with the Slovakians and they're just like, ah, oh, we're set to receive these guys. We love the sentiment. We just don't know any Christians. <laughs> and he's got this suitcase. He's like, kadonk. <laughs> I've got like, your Christians boy, right yes, here. You need some Christian refugees? I got them. It's funny you yeah. should mention that. Yeah, uh, and, yeah and it's just, it, it seems, whether you, you can attribute it to whatever, you know, there's some out there that are going to read this and go, well, I'm, I'm not uh, faithful. I see that as, as wonderful happenstance. But no matter what you attribute it to, it's extraordinary how everything came together. Really, it truly was. I mean, yeah. it, it's like pieces coming together in ways that you never would have expected them otherwise. And, and the way that you give the story of the relocation of the, 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 the group, the IDP, the International Displaced, Internally Displaced Persons, is harrowing. It reads yeah. like a screenplay and just... Uh, it felt like a screenplay, strangely enough, in the middle of that, especially as we were making the final move from um, the camp to the airport. I, I was like, I feel like I'm in the middle of a movie. Was the stupid Russians kept getting in the way, <laughs> yes, right? I mean, of all Russians things, the Russians get in the way. <laughs> they, uh, they thwarted the evacuation, uh, almost threw it off twice, yeah. Because they were uh, launching cruise missiles across Iraqi airspace, and so the Iraqis had to shut down the airspace. So we lost our private plane that we'd secured, and then um, you know we're, you're dealing with another country and an entire logistical massive project set up to receive these people who are waiting on the other end, and then you have people in their community saying, "Don't take the refugees," right. and you realize if you don't make this happen quickly and succinctly and easily, it might not ever happen. Well, if it doesn't happen, I mean, just to contextualize things for the audience, this is ISIS is right down the street. Yes. So ISIS this is this was, is not a safe area, right? Yeah. This is I mean, ISIS is the pushing forward. The front lines forward. at that point were like forty minutes away yeah. from us. Yeah. And these were not people that were going to fare very well. No, no, they'd already yeah. you know been disappointed so many times. They'd lost their entire you know homes and well-being. So the last thing we wanted to do was to have this whole thing fall apart on right. them too. So let me let me skip to a final question about about this because you you've dedicated a lot of your post CIA life to to bringing. Uh, Christians and others out of the way of persecution, particularly from groups like ISIS. Where are we now? Because it doesn't seem like we're in a great place. There's a lot of backlash from Euro the European countries where elements of, people call them the far right, but certainly nativists, mm -hmm. who don't want more refugees, who see the, what they call it, the Islamization of, of Europe. And then, of course, the United States, by putting certain countries on a, a travel ban, which mm -hmm. may or may not survive the courts, but as of now, it's potentially in place, and certainly that includes a lot of countries yeah. where there are people trying to escape ISIS. Is there light at the end of the tunnel? Do you see, I mean, are, are you optimistic? You're optimistic by nature. I can tell that you're optimistic by nature, but are you, are you thinking that this work is going to get hard to the point of impossible, or are you still looking at, at ways to make this happen? So I'm optimistic, but I'm also a realist, yeah. having worked in government especially. Yeah. My concern is that there isn't enough a debate about how our processes work right now. So we talk about how great they are, but they take forever. They're right. completely inefficient, and, and that's not being addressed at all by any administration. So let me give you an example. When my mother-in-law wanted to travel to the United States for the birth of a grandchild, the State Department could couldn't figure out whether she was a terrorist or not and whether to give her a visa. Let me remind you, her son and daughter-in-law yes. were working as top secret security cleared CIA officers. So if the U.S. government can't figure out if my mother-in-law is a security threat, right. then we have a much bigger problem right. here than anybody is talking about at the moment. When you talk about the UNHCR, with the United Nations High Commission Refugees, which I, worked, I was in the Balkans in the 1990s, mm -hmm. certainly work with them there. 
and talk about bureaucracy. Oh, goodness, And yes. we're talking waiting years, potentially. Yes, and so that's, just because it takes forever for the process to work doesn't mean that it's a good process. Right. Yeah, we've got to find ways to, to hire people who have the skill set and the expertise needed to do this job properly. So we can take existing processes and find out how to streamline them, because of course you've got probably 15 government agencies doing vetting of potential uh, you know, visa uh, mm. re requests. Um, but if people don't know how to run a trace, a basic name trace, right. how are they going to do this? Because well, that's the bottom line. And some of the semantics are, are frustrating. The whole, like, don't call yourselves refugees. Don't call yourself <laughs> refugees. Because just saying that word can completely prevent you from getting out of a bad situation. Just right. Because because we were dealing with internally displaced right. Iraqis within their own country, um, but if they had accidentally said, I'm a refugee to government officials at the airport, they might have shut down the whole thing. Like, what, wait, where are you going? Right. You can't travel anywhere. So yeah, all those little details do matter. Do you hope that this at least shines a light on an issue that people may not be thinking about as much? Yes. As they would otherwise. Yes, but I also want to point out that here, here's my thing. that is, um, I would like the United States and the European Union to start looking at uh, the illegal people smuggling issue as a counterterrorism issue, as a national security issue. We have all of these poor African migrants and, and Middle Eastern migrants amassed at the borders trying to get into Europe, not realizing what's on the other end. Um, and they're being abused and they're being taken advantage of and you have people smugglers that are behind this that are driving these waves of people mm -hmm. and that's what we're not talking about right now right. so those people smugglers are causing such confusion chaos and um, I mean they're they're holding Africans in Libya and they're holding them as slaves that is not okay We've got to do something about that. We have to, and we're really good at counterterrorism operations. So if we can take that skill set as a government and apply it to this issue, right. we could make a huge difference. Perhaps it's a job for someone with a particular set of skills. <laughs> that Amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michelle Rigby Assad is the author of the new book, Breaking Cover, My Secret Life in the CIA and What It Taught Me About What's Worth Fighting For. Uh, regardless of how much you know about this world. Uh, it's a fascinating insight into uh, just everything you could possibly think about when it comes to motivations. And I think the title really makes sense in this case. You know, it's like, what's worth fighting for? Like, why are we doing what we're doing? Whether it's joining the agency, whether it's going overseas, fighting against the entrenched patriarchy or whatever you want to call sure, it yeah. and, and moving forward and then finally the deciding to do what you're doing now. We really appreciate you taking the time. The book was fascinating. I, I, I read fast, but I knocked out in an afternoon. Wow. So uh, just because it was, it was not only was it well-written, but it's also very interesting from beginning to end. So really appreciate you. you taking the time to come talk to us here on SpyCast. Thanks so much for having me. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.